0: You can't compare your day one to someone else's year 10. That's silly. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we all do. A lot of us do. And as a simple analogy for working out, there was a time I was training for a half Ironman here up in Canada. And I'm a plus size model. I mean, the monitor makes me look a little thin, but I like my ice cream. Let's put it that way. So I had to get in a certain shape to run and I hated running. So how did I do it? Well, first day I put my shoes at the door. Second day I put them on and I walked down the block. Third day, I went around the other block. By a week, by two weeks, by three weeks, I was running a mile, two miles, three miles. And it wasn't because from day one, I said to myself, yeah, I'm going to go run 21 miles. No way.
1: You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, And today we have on Marcin Droz. He is the managing partner of M1 Real Capital, where he and his team focus on acquiring value-add multifamily properties throughout the Southeast. Over the past 16 years, he's helped acquire over 1,500 units in the US and has become a go-to in the world of capital raising. As most of you know, and I've talked about on the show, I'm on this journey of raising capital. So I'm going to pick his brain on the easy way to raise capital. So I'll just stop there and say, Marson, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, sir. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Buttercup. Of course. Love it. I'm on a big peanut butter fan right now, or big peanut butter kick right now. So I can get down with that.
0: I am also addicted to the stuff.
1: Now you are coming to us from Canada. Is there a good Canadian peanut butter cup ice cream that we should be on the lookout if we're we're ever up that way?
0: (laughs) If there is, I'm sure it's mixed with maple syrup.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Peanut butter and maple syrup. Can't go wrong. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today?
0: Sure. Yeah. And again, Matt, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story a little bit. So I've been at this for 16 years. I started in private equity and the real estate side then started doing my own deals and fast forward to today the thing that uh, you and i were kind of chatting about earlier that really gets me excited now is in addition to buying apartment buildings and doing what we do we actually started an m1 training where we teach people the systems and the processes behind being able to raise capital because it blows me away that you have a checklist for tenants you have a checklist for acquisitions you have your checklist when you get financing but when it comes to fundraising equity fundraising deal structuring Most people are like, "Uh, I don't know, I just go out and talk to people. Let's figure it out. So with M1 training, I've kind of just hit that right on the head. And it's been a fun process to try to take something that to me came naturally and make it simplified. So that's the scoop today, sir.
1: Yeah. And I'd love having you on the show because I'm on this journey and I'm going to use this hour to kind of pick your brain on all the best practices on that. But before we get there, where did your real estate journey begin?
0: So I'm sure you've heard this once or twice. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was pretty pretty young. Read the book. Thought to myself, Yeah, I can do that. I'll figure that out. So uh, went through the process to learn about how to buy properties. Now nobody in my family owned real estate. Nobody. Like literally, my family is from Europe. You don't own property in Europe. You rent. Everyone rents. That's just the mentality. Uh, things were so expensive then, now, today that you just didn't even look at real estate. So when we came over to North America, we rented for a good period of time. So. I needed to get access to people that were in the real estate business. And as a teenager, the only way I could add any value was to literally carry four sale signs for realtors. True story. That's what I did. I did it for free and I had to beg them to let me do it. So I'm jamming these massive wrought iron signs into my beat up old Volkswagen Golf. I wanted to be in the room. I wanted an excuse to walk into the office. And then I started hearing things like, amortization schedules purchase and sale agreement like you just start hearing words that how do you understand a topic you learn the words and then you go research the words so i did that after a while one of the realtors took pity on me and decided to help me out figure out how to buy my first property bought a rental property the month after i immediately learned about negative cash flow <laughs> so you know i'm 20 or 21 years old and i also learned an important lesson that not all realtors are investors and that was interesting because uh, the rent i thought i'd get i didn't get and whatever it was per month, negative cash flow, it was an experience. So vacated the property, renovated it, flipped it, made a ton of money. And when I looked at it at that age, I was like, I can make more money just flipping one house a year than I could working a job. And from there, I was hooked. So fast forward a couple of years, I was lucky enough to get recruited into a private equity business, real estate focus, immediately went from the small, single, duplex, multifamily into okay, guys, we're buying this 200-unit building. Hey, we're buying this 300-unit purpose-built rental. Hey, we're doing this. We're doing this conversion. In early 20s, I saw that, and that was it. I was hooked.
1: Yeah. Do you remember who gave you the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or where you stumbled
0: upon it? So I actually bought it myself when I was walking through, was it a Kohl's or Barnes & Noble or whatever it was at the time? And I was walking by, and I saw the subtitle, and it caught my attention. and it said, what the rich teach their kids about money that the poor and middle class don't. And I kind of read that like a slight. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's see. And I opened the book. I literally read half the book in the store, bought it, went home, read the rest of it that night, went back the next day, read Cashflow Quadrant, went back the next day, read Guide to Investing. And I was literally through three or four books within, I'd say, a month.
1: I have a purpose for asking this question. Were you a big reader before that?
0: Not really, no. No.
1: I tend to think that like I was a terrible student growing up, and it was because I wasn't really generally interested in the topics. Right. And so yeah. same, when I first found reading and the topics that I really enjoyed, then I could devour books. But it's, if it's stuff that I don't enjoy or is way over my head, science, for example, then I'm not a huge reader. But I find it interesting when people first find that book, it either yeah. clicks or it doesn't click. And for the ones right. that do, you can't ever look back.
0: And you know, it's interesting. It's funny that you say that because i never thought about it like that, but you're right. Because since then, I mean, I devour books now. I mean, I listen to a lot of audio books as well because it's easier sometimes, but reading for me, because I always associated it to a textbook, just like what you're saying. Right. So for me, reading was just another science book another, whatever it was. Right. But as soon as I read something that was, I could see myself implementing, that was a game changer. And you're right. Cause some people read the book and they're like, Well, I don't know what to do next. It doesn't tell me what to do. Well, yeah, you're right. His books don't tell you what to do. They give you a why and a what, but they don't give you a how. Like They're not how-to books. And people that want how-to books, people that are generally really good at school, they're always very critical of that book because it doesn't tell you, okay, here's exactly what you do. Then you do this. Then you do that.
1: It's just a huge mindset shift. And I just gave it to my nephew who graduated high school not too long ago. And I know he's not a huge reader. And I'm really, really got my fingers crossed that he reads it to see if this kind of changes the way he views the world. One thing I loved about that book specifically was it talked about, don't think about the obstacles about getting something. Think about how do I get it? Not the obstacles, basically. I forgot the exact terminology, but So you're up there, you're flipping houses, and then you get recruited into this PE firm. Did you know that you wanted to go into real estate full-time? Did you know you wanted to get into private equity?
0: Talk to us a little bit about how that went down. So the real estate thing for me was as simple as I saw that as a real tangible way to be able to create financial freedom. To me, it just made so much sense. It was simple. I could wrap my head around it. The tangibility of what it was, it wasn't fluffy. It wasn't a pie in the sky thing. It was just there. And for me, even at a young age, they made all the sense in the world. As far as the private equity thing, for me, I saw that as a shortcut to getting in a room. So anytime I want to learn something, I either find a mentor, I get training, or I align myself with a group of people that are already operating at that level. Because for me, I learn best by just getting thrown on the front lines. Like that to me is my favorite way to learn anything. You want to learn a sport? Let's go play it. Want to learn how to play chess? Let's just go play a few games. You want to learn business, real estate, whatever, fundraising, throw me in it. We'll figure it out. I'll read a textbook after, but maybe, but but I want to go try it first. So for me, the PE thing made tons of sense because I didn't know anybody else buying 200, 300 unit buildings. It was the things you read about in the paper. We were doing that. And from a mindset perspective, I mean, after that, anything's possible.
1: Yeah. I also talk a lot about when people are looking for their careers or next moves in their careers, people make career decisions based off family, finances, or skills. And early on in your career, I think you should always go to the skills and the people that are the leaders in that organization, because those skills will compound and pay dividends over time, as we've seen in your career, as you've kind of worked your way through PE and now run a basically a PE firm on your own.
0: It's full circle. Yes, you're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the skills you learned at the private equity company. Were you raising capital? Were you doing deal underwriting? What were you doing in that world?
0: So my primary goal was deal capital raising. So that was my primary objective in the business. Now, what made it really interesting was that because I, over a fairly quick period of time, just had really good success by just grinding it out, right? Like They tell you to do certain things, most people say they do them. I just did it. I didn't know any better. I just did the things they told me to do. And they told me to do X, I do X times five, X times 10. Like I would just, and because of that, the amount of equity that I was able to bring in from the qualified investors that we were pursuing was 2X, 3X, sometimes 5X, what other guys were doing. So I had an opportunity to ask a lot more detailed questions that maybe a kid in their early or mid-20s really shouldn't have the right to ask. But if you're bringing in half the cash for a deal or a third of the cash for a deal, then they'll entertain it. They'll discuss it with you as somebody who's added value. So I had an opportunity to learn from the operators, got to ask them questions. Towards the later part of my time with that firm, I did get involved with the structuring side. Whether they liked what I said or not, I wasn't in a position to have an opinion. I started having opinions because I started connecting the dots, whereas other guys were just happy to make a couple hundred grand a year or whatever it was. I was very interested in the business of how things came together. So went out of my way to build the relationships with the service providers, the infrastructure, the ecosystem. And after a few years of doing that, I realized very quickly that, unfortunately, I'd kind of hit the ceiling, that entity and that business. And their goal was for me to be a very, very, very high-paid, successful employee forever. And of course, that wasn't what I signed up for. So I made a very unpopular decision to move on and start on my own. And I got to tell you, Matt, when you go in business for yourself, when you drop that W-2 and you pick up your own thing and all of a sudden you're responsible for everything from the business cards to hiring to everything down the line, you realize that that skill that you actually were fantastic at is just one piece, a much larger wheel, which me in my mid-20s, the grays came (laughs) at that point because like, what's the matter? I'm great at this. That's fantastic. And that is very important, but it has to fit into something bigger.
1: It takes a team to do everything in a business.
0: Learning team building was a very sobering, if I could just be candid with you, it was a very sobering experience for me because, and a lot of people will relate to this, whether you're in real estate or tech or whatever it is, you're typically, a lot of people have that lone wolf mentality where if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. If you can't expect other people to perform at the same level and yada, 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 yada. And sure, but it'll never get beyond you if that's the mentality you have.
1: How did you make that transition? So I see this a lot in sales. Unwillingly.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. It's almost like you have to because the boat's going yeah. down and you need extra people to help row, I guess. But I see this a lot in sales professionals specifically because usually sales professionals are A-type personalities, very hard driven. They like things done a specific way. But when it comes to leading a broader group, they sometimes struggle with that. How were you able to kind of make that transition or maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the learning lessons you learned
0: along the way? So one of the things I keep in mind today is that aim for progress, not perfection. That's probably one of my favorite quotes as well. So first of all, let's assume that the way you do it is the right way to do it, which is also highly debatable, as I've learned over the years. But let's assume the way you do it is 100% the right way. Wouldn't it make sense to have three, five, or 10 or 20 other people doing things that you are capable of doing the best, apparently, which again is debatable, wouldn't it make sense to have those people do it 80% the same way? Wouldn't you get much further? Wouldn't you have much better results? And for me, that's the way I look at it because within my team, my organization, business, businesses, whatever we do, it's unrealistic to expect that people are going to do things 100% the way I think I want them done. And to be candid, when someone else is doing that thing full-time, they will come back with better ideas, a better mousetrap, so to speak. So that 80% that I thought they're operating at might end up being actually 120, 130, 200%, whatever it is. So having the humility to create an environment where people can call you out on things and can have the confidence to know that they're not going to be penalized for trying to improve things and raise the bar. You're right. A lot of A-type people, especially salespeople, have a tough time with that because they're used to being the alpha. They're used to being the person that is out front, I got the S on my chest, I got the cape. it's me, it's, I'm the reason why this all works. There's a book called Good to Great, where it talks about the best form of leadership is the leader that when things go well, they point at the team. And when things go bad, they point at themselves. A lot of people, they live their lives with the other way around. When things go bad, they point at everybody else. When things go well, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's why I'm here. That's why this worked.
1: I think one thing I don't want to breeze over is this concept of progress, not perfection. Because Mm -hmm. I think so many people, I have a saying, get going and then get good. I think Mm -hmm. so many people want the end state of whatever they're trying to achieve. And if till they can get to the end state, they're not willing to take the first step. And we think about this with finances, with making our first deal, with making sure you have all the pieces of information before you invest in something over and over and over again. It's about progress and moving little inches down the field Versus just trying to throw a Hail Mary and get to the end zone as quick as possible.
0: You can't compare your day one to someone else's year 10. That's silly. Mm. And yet that's what we all do. A lot of us do. And as a simple analogy for working out, there was a time I was training for half Ironman here up in Canada. And I'm a plus size model. I mean, the monitor makes me look a little thin, but I like my ice cream. Let's put it that way. So I had to get in a certain shape to run and I hated running. So how did I do it? Well, first day I put my shoes at the door. Second day, I put them on and I walked down the block. Third day, I went around the other block by a week, by two weeks, by three weeks, I was running a mile, two miles, three miles. And it wasn't because from day one, I said to myself, yeah, I'm going to go run 21 miles. No way. You must have done
1: some research because I am an Ironman athlete and I completely agree with that. I talk (laughs) a lot about when people hear of an Ironman race, 140.6 miles or a half, which is 70.3 miles. They think there's no way I could do that in a day. And I'm like, it's the little consistent actions of doing something every day that gets you towards that goal. There's no one workout that's going to get you ready for that. And there's no two workouts if you miss one workout that are going to make up for the missed workout. So it's about doing something every day, not necessarily the right thing every day.
0: Yeah. And for me, I had to get a goal that was so outrageous. I literally signed up for the Ironman a year before and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get back into shape because I needed an end result to be accountable to, because I'm not going to show up at this thing and be disqualified. Like I'm going to finish this thing. So I had to shave off 20 or 30 pounds. I had to change some habits and it was good for me. And that's literally why I did it. And we just had a baby a little while ago, but I'm an iron kettle right now. I'd like to be an iron man (laughs) again at some point. So maybe we can get that back on the roster, but yeah, it's progress, right? If I had to think to myself, oh, I'm going to do it again. No, like you got to, the shoes at the door, then this, then that, right?
1: Well, I want to change gears now and talk a little bit about capital raising. So, I want to pick sure. your brain on the easy way to raise capital and you've come up with basically a system or a formula to raising capital. Can you walk us through the easy system that you put together?
0: Yeah, no, I'd love to. So, the easy stands, it's an acronym. E is exclusive, A is abundant, S is scarce, and Y is for your allocation. Now, the easy system is a much broader process than what I'm about to talk about, but the actual acronym itself is something that people can use if they're re-engaging old contacts, if they're feeling some urgency on a transaction they need to find some capital for, or if you're at least trying to establish some value with a potential investor. So the biggest challenge that a lot of people have, whether they're syndicating or doing funds or even just trying to get their first investor, is they overcomplicate the conversation and they talk in context that people, they don't understand. So For example, I have friends that are very successful business owners, entrepreneurs, sold companies, bought companies. But if I start talking to them about going in cap rates and coming out cap rates, I start talking about what's happening with the rates, how it's going to compare to fixed or variable mortgage. If I start talking about some of this technical stuff that we amongst ourselves love to talk about, then they're going to stare at me and eventually the glaze will form and that'll be it. And a confused mind doesn't buy, a confused mind doesn't engage. So Don't talk to me in those terms. Tell me about things that I can understand. So, and there's only three or four things that are really good about your deal that make it exclusive. So simple things like it's on the corner of Main and Main and there's 20,000 cars a day. Okay, great. I get, I understand that. It's across the street from the VA or the hospital or there's a FedEx shipping office right there. Like things that anybody can understand. Tell me that the appraisal came in and it's a million dollars over what you guys just tied up the property for. I get that. I understand. Tell me that it's unique because it's all two bedrooms and that's great because of the community it's in. Tell me things that I as an everyday person could go, yeah, that may actually makes... I may not know price per square foot. I don't understand cap rates, but I understand what you just said because I drive by that building. I get it. It makes sense. These things so exclusive. Think about three to five things that make your deal. Like, What are the things that you fell in love with? You didn't fall in love with the going in cap rate, going out cap rate. You fell in love with just the basic things in that building, that asset that make it make sense practically. So, you know, the rents are $300 a month under market. Great, that's simple to understand. So that's E, the exclusive. The A is the abundant piece. And a lot of people that go out to raise money, they almost approach it from a perspective of that you're almost hat in hand. Like, what do you think of this deal? Like, what do you think? Love your opinion. You're almost looking for validation from them on what you're doing. Look, you're a professional, you know what you're doing, you know your business, and you have an abundance of people to talk to. And you have to make that very clear to people in a way where you don't sound arrogant, but you're being candid. So the abundance piece can be as simple as, I know we didn't get a chance to work on the last deal. I immediately thought of you on this one. I'm gonna go ahead and walk you through this. I do need to let you know that I'm only looking for X amount of investors, and i still got another 16 people to talk to. There's a polite way to let them know that you're doing this. Like this is happening. I am moving forward. I would like you to be part of it as opposed to, again, hat in hand, you know, like your opinion on this. What do you think? And again, you can do this in a way where it's not arrogant. It's, it's a function of you're doing this. This is happening. I thought of you. What do you think? So the abundance piece is important. As for scarcity in real estate, there's two forms of scarcity. One is time. You're closing. When are you closing? That is a form of scarcity. Now, one of the mistakes people make is they give the investor the actual real estate date closing. So if you're closing the property on the 31st, the investor might think, oh, okay, so I can send a check on the 30th. No, no, you can't. (laughs) So give yourself enough time. Smart syndicators know the difference. They typically say fund closing is the 10th or 15th or whatever it is. So that's one form of scarcity. The other one that's obvious. So the amount of room you have. You're raising a million dollars, $5 million, X million dollars, whatever it is, whatever that amount is, uh, make that clear. So it could be as simple as we've gone through the abundance piece, Matt, got a few people I need to talk to X, Y, Z. My challenge with this opportunity is we're closing on the 10th of the month. Our financial closing is on the 10th of the month. And we're only looking for, let's say, a million dollars. And our average investment is typically between 100 and 150,000. So we're only looking for another seven or eight people to participate. So there you go. There's your scarcity. You're not pushy. You're not salesy. And by the way, guys, underlining everything I'm saying, never lie, never BS, never fudge. If you got three people to talk to, tell them you got three people. If you haven't raised any money yet, tell them. Like, the bigger checks you get, the smarter people you'll come across. Be honest. Be candid. Just always tell the truth with wherever you're at, and they'll appreciate that. And then the last part is the your allocation. So in other words, we've gone through exclusivity. What makes the deal make sense? There's a lot of people I can talk to. I thought of you. Here are my limitations in terms of scarcity. And then you'll have a back and forth. Maybe they'll ask you about the market. What about this? What about that? And there'll be a conversation. At some point, you might say something like, look, it sounds like this might be of interest to you. If everything, obviously you need more information, I'm going to send you the package. But if everything did check out, what kind of allocation would you potentially consider? And they might say, well, I'm actually not interested, whatever it is. If they're interested, they'll tell you, well, if everything checks out, I'd consider doing X or Y you could say, okay, great. So today's, let's say Tuesday, I'm going to send you the package after just so you can review it. Do you mind if we hop on a call on Friday just to see if it all makes sense? And at that point, we can decide where you're at. I think this is a
1: good formula for sales in general. So most of our listeners know that I'm in sales. So I Mm -hmm. appreciate the art of the sale and the art of presenting something. Mm -hmm. Of this easy formula, where do you feel like people miss the most? Mm -hmm. What's the hardest thing for somebody to grasp and implement?
0: They never ask for the commitment. And by the way, guys, everything I'm saying, please check with a securities lawyer and accountant. Have all your paperwork done. Make sure you're dealing with the right investors. Capital raising is a regulated activity. This isn't like selling fill in the blank. This is a highly regulated industry. You've got the SEC, you've got the regulators, follow the rules, 506 BEC, whatever you're doing, get the right paperwork. But ahead of that, the biggest challenge that I see, Matt, is people don't ask for the sale. They don't ask for the commitment or they don't clarify with the individual whether this is a fit for them or not. They they just don't do it. They typically end a phone call like, okay, great. So I'll send you the information and yeah, let me know. quick." And they just want to get off the phone, right? Because you boxed yourself in. You didn't ask questions. You didn't demonstrate value. You haven't created urgency and you haven't explained the circumstances surrounding this transaction properly. That is a skill set, 100%.
1: Yeah. It's funny that you say that too. And I'm smiling ear to ear because one thing I've learned about sales more than anything is you only get what you ask for in life. And not saying that you will get everything that you ask for, but you only get what you ask for. So you might as well just ask for things that you want because you would be surprised what comes back to you.
0: Yeah. One of the things we teach with our group is if you feel like you're losing someone's attention or someone's they're not responding to you, calling you back or emailing you back, One of my favorite questions to ask, which is super polite, but also gets right to the heart of matters. Hey, I haven't heard from you. Is this still a priority for you? It's my favorite question. Like, is this still a priority for you? It's not a fit for everyone. What I do isn't a fit for everyone, but I know we had a good conversation. I haven't heard back. Is, Is this still a priority? And if they say, yeah, it is, but you know, my goldfish died or something happened or whatever it is, maybe they just needed that jolt, or maybe they had a change of heart. Maybe something came up. Maybe they need the money for something. It's life right? So, and as long as people always feel like it's okay to say no, and you're a professional and the train is moving regardless, you're welcome to come back and circumstances change.
1: I think the abundance piece of this train is moving with or without you, we would love for you to be on is the hardest shift for me to overcome. But also I would love the exclusive and the way you describe exclusive because I think you and I are really big into this space. So we could talk all day long around vocabulary and acronyms and things like that. But for the people that aren't in this space, they don't understand that. And one of my favorite quotes in life is meet people where they are before trying to bring them to where you want them to be. And that's a perfect point of like, you have to sometimes educate your investors on what the qualifications of a good deal and why this is a good deal. So super easy formula for anybody to implement trying to sell anything.
0: Well, and it's just like we make it sound easy on the video here, but it reminds me of, you know, I watch golf and I'm like, oh, I could do that. So I go buy a putter and I can't put the ball in the hole to save my life. Right. And these things that we talk about aren't complicated. They're simple, but they're not easy. It requires repetition. You absorb the content and understand it in such a way where, like you just said, the easy system is a formula for sales as a whole. It's true because you could apply any deal, any transaction into this format and still build rapport, create urgency, and do it in a way where you're professional and well-received. Yeah. So in your program, you talk about
1: the easy formula. What else, if somebody enrolls in the program, would they get from your training?
0: We cover a fair bit. And it all starts from, I guess, the starting point for a lot of people is helping them package themselves in a way where potential investors can see themselves working with you because they see the traits in you that investors are all inherently looking for. And a lot of us are really bad at selling ourselves. I think is probably the best way to summarize it because we think that what we're doing is not unique. We don't see ourselves as having anything. And that's not generally some people that have a very strong sense of self-worth, but a lot of people that get into deals, syndications, especially if they're starting or growing, They have this imposter syndrome and they have this fear of not being able to have the credibility or the track record or things like this. One of the things we do is we have a niche assessment that people go through. So there's several components to it. One of them is your story. So in other words, being able to tell a story succinctly about yourself, what you stand for, what you've done, where you've been in a way where people can pick up certain character traits of you that would lend itself to, hey, this person's trustworthy they're reliable, they're going to see things through, they're dependable. Like there's certain characteristics that people are looking for from people that they're going to park their money with, right? Because if someone gives you 10000 or 100000 or a $1 million dollars, they don't leave with an apartment building. <laughs> they don't leave with a car. They don't leave with a house. They don't leave with anything other than a piece of paper and your phone number. So they're investing in you. And for them to write that check, they have to see things in you that make you trustworthy, likable, credible, respectable. And one of the things that we do is we teach people how to package themselves. There's no gimmickry. There's no tricks. There's just your life framed in a way that puts forward the positive attributes of who you are, which is really important. So that's a big part of what we do. That's that's something that's really important for people. So again, your story is one part of it. The other piece is your unfair advantage. So in other words, What is something about you that makes you uniquely qualified to be in that seat? So, for example, for me, I went into PE. I had access to information at a very young age from a very different perspective. So that immediately rewired me. And I'd never been able to go back to just flipping a duplex. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just I can't go back to that. So that's my unfair advantage that I see the capital world from a very different perspective. For someone else, it could be, hey, I grew up in a family of realtors. I'm really good at finding private deals. I grew up in a family of contractors and really good at running trades. It could be, hey, my wife and I are engineers. We're really systems oriented. And that's why we're great for real estate. So there's a lot of different components that make you credible. And it's just about putting those things forward. Yeah, I love this idea of a
1: unique advantage. Because as I started growing down this personal development train and finance and all this kind of stuff, I stumbled upon Gary Vee who talks a lot about, hey, look, the internet is a huge, vast place where people are carving out their own little niches, which Mm -hmm. basically means that if you love talking about purple Smurfs all day, every day, there is at Mm -hmm. least 100,000 people that would pay you to talk about purple Smurfs all day, every day. And so what I really mean by that is knowing who you are and the people that you generally speak to and connect with is okay to define. And the other day, I don't know how I found this, but Do you know how many tractor videos there are on YouTube? I mean, tractor videos with like 80,000 views, 100,000 views, a million views and things like that. And it just baffled me that like, that's not anything I know about, but there are people out there that love to learn about the latest tractors out there. So packaging up your unique advantage, there's an audience for that is one of my biggest learning lessons, I would say over the past 10 years.
0: Yeah, 100%. Being able to own that uniqueness to yourself and not shy away from it, Now with the advent of social media and online and everything else, people are looking for the authentic version of you. And I mean, look, people don't write checks because of the deals. They write checks because of the people. I mean, deals are out there. If you're looking for a deal, if you're just looking to invest in real estate, you can go buy REITs, you can go buy stocks, you can do all kinds of stuff. You don't necessarily have to buy into a private opportunity. A lot of times the people that do it, do it because they like the people that are there. That's it. Before we get to the last round here,
1: you're a guy that's been in real estate for a long time. You've seen from the PE side to now running your own boutique firm. You've got 1,500 doors. We're sitting here in June of 2022. Where do you think we are in the real estate market right now? Give us some predictions on how you think the next year to five years are going to look, because I know those are two distinctly different time periods.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a fair question. And if you know the answer, I'd love to hear it. It's interesting. Today is a very different world than we've been in historically. I mean, the last crash that happened in 08, 09, that was a crash of too much debt. Today, we have potentially a tsunami of too much money. That is a fundamentally different dynamic. So it is possible for the market to crash in real terms, but appreciate in nominal terms. And if I could take a second to explain that. Because you have so much money in the marketplace, there's a few people in my world that are sort of in consensus on some of this stuff because there's so much money out there and the saving rates are so high. It is very possible for the amount of money that's out there to chase the the limited amount of goods, and it makes everything more expensive on paper. But at the same time, it's very possible that the actual tangibility, that the amount of capital that you have relative to what things cost, even though you have more money things can increase in price faster than the amount of more money that you have. So you have a situation where you have things are, people are richer on paper, but in practice, they're poorer. And unfortunately, I see that probably being as a theme going forward. So how that relates to real estate, look, rates are going to keep going up a little bit here. They just came up in Canada here, another half point. And I'm sure they're going to keep raising in the US. But the trillion dollar question is, when rates keep going up, at what point, A, what straw is going to break the camel's back? And then B, when that happens, is the government going to make the unpopular decision to keep those rates up, keep raising those rates? Or are they going to make the short-term, more convenient decision of dropping rates again and pumping stimulus? Now, if they keep raising rates from an Austrian economic standpoint, that's technically the right thing to do because you tighten money supply, more honest money, but it'll create a lot of pain. So I think governments are historically more prone to just print money. And I could be wrong as easily as I might be somewhat right. My prediction is that rates will rise continuously, but there will be some event where rates will be tested and I think they'll come back down to zero or near zero. And when that happens, I think we're going to see something like we've never seen. Moral of the story, I think... Real estate is still the right asset class. People are always going to need a place to live. I got pitched people pitching me all the crypto and all that stuff and all the metaverse stuff. And I'm like, look, I might throw some money at it, but I don't understand it. I'm trying to understand it. But here's one thing I do understand. When you take those goggles off and you come back to Earth, (laughs) you're going to put those goggles down one of my apartments and go to bed. (laughs) So yes, that world may coexist as well. But at the end of the day, you're still going to come back to this planet.
1: Right. And I think you're right about a lot of those things around the convenience of printing money versus raising rates and honest money and things like that. One of the things that really took me, not by surprise, but it really heightened my awareness around it was in 2020, we started having margin call loans. That really means is that we've securitized everything in our economic world to where if it goes down, then somebody's on the hook for paying back the loan quickly. And not having that capital to pay back the loan forces a fire sale, which now gets you in a deflationary environment. But to your point, people are always going to need real estate. And that's why I believe that no matter what happens, real estate will go up into the right as long as you give it enough time. Problem is, can't tell you how much time you have to give it. It might be five years, it might be 25 years, but it'll be an interesting world that we live in over the next three years, I think.
0: I think as long as people are focused on the fire, you know, people ask me all the time, hey, is this a good deal? I always say, I don't know, does it cash flow? Does it make money? Does it carry itself? Like, What is a good deal? Well, it depends who you ask. For me, it's a deal that cash flows regardless of where the market goes. Cash flow is what will get you through a recession, depression. The market goes crazy up to the right. Great. Market is stagflationary. Okay, great. As long as your cash flowing and your costs are relatively fixed you can weather a lot of storms. Most of the challenges that people have in real estate or business are because they can't hold on. They can't carry it.
1: That's it. Well, fantastic conversation.
0: I want to be cognizant of your
1: time and we're going to switch to our last round here. We're calling this The Five Toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: I would have to say that my favorite book remains a book by a guy named Ryan Holiday. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. And the subtitle is What is in the Way Becomes the Way. So that book to me is... I read it years ago. I still give it to our staff. And the book really, it really drills down on the victim versus the victor mentality and the ability to move forward. I think in our society today, a lot of people tend to, this is in the world not to do something. And there's no shortage of people that will justify whatever inaction you take or don't take. And that's fine. I think having the ability to move forward is really important. So again, the subtitle is, what is in the way becomes the way is a fantastic pretext to the book.
1: Agreed. And if Ryan Holiday is a new name for some of our listeners, go check out his stuff because stoicism and the belief that the obstacle is the way he produces a lot of content on that. And it's fantastic. Mm. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things that you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? Cold
0: showers. <laughs> You're a cold shower guy, huh? I hate it every morning. I can't tell you how much I hate the cold shower, but... It feels great. It wakes you up. It's the first battle of the day, as I like to say. There's a lot of benefits to it. It's anti-inflammatory. You can read up about this stuff for days or weeks if you wanted to. And, and whether you think it's real or not, I can tell you right now, for me, it's massive. It makes a massive difference. Also, it creates discipline. The other thing I do is I get up at 5. So I get up at 5 in the morning. I love getting up at 5. I get some work done. I get a workout in. My wife gets up. I take the baby for a little bit after. I already feel like I've got a third of my day done. And for me, that immediately is empowering.
1: I love that you said it creates discipline because I'm all about, you should create these little points of friction in your life to make you mentally stronger. And while I'm not on the cold shower train yet, it definitely is something that would create a ton of discipline for me.
0: Well, you can start like the sneakers at the front door. You can start with a warm shower, then mild and chilled then cold to frigid, right? So I didn't just start jumping in with the cold shower. This was however many years ago. I got introduced to it by a buddy of mine that plays football and you do the cold plunge thing. So I'm like, dude, you're nuts. And I jumped in there with him for 20 seconds. I lost my mind. He's in there for five minutes. So I just think he's nuts. But now years later, I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? My favorite advice that I got was again, progress instead of perfection. But another piece of advice that I would give people that I took well, eventually <laughs> is my early 20s people tell me to enjoy the ride to enjoy the process cuz taipei people we're self motivated we're driven we don't need rah 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 tapes to get going we're good like if anything we need demotivation because you're already tearing at the seams you're ready to go so for me the best advice i wish i took earlier is enjoy the process that you're going through because it's going to be a ride it's going to be a hot mess it's not going to turn out the way you thought but it's, it's a process that you can really appreciate if you just take the time to acknowledge what's happening as it's happening. The good, the bad, all of it. At this point in my life, I look at my life like my own little movie character. You know what I mean? Like I'm living my life as a movie in my own mind and I'm trying to be the good guy, the good guy in the movie.
1: I love that. Some of the most impactful vacations I have are where I don't have self-service and I can just truly decompress. So enjoy the ride and you'll be surprised how much mental clarity you have as well from that. Our fourth one is, what's the thing
0: that you're most proud of in your life? Well, I'd have to say now, I'm a new dad. I'd have to say my daughter. I'm one of those dads now, before anybody who doesn't have kids, you're like, oh, you're know, you not again, right? I'm telling you, as soon as you have that kid and your baby grabs your finger with their whole hand, for me, it's the proudest. And for me, maintaining that I want to continue to be the person that when she's older, whether she sees your podcast or anything else I've done, I wanted to be like, yeah, that's my dad.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why?
0: If it was alive, given where we are in the world right now with the crossroads, I'd have to say Ray Dalio because he's well ahead of his time. The books he's written, he wrote the new one, something principles to world. world order. Is his newest one? Yeah, that's a dense book. I read it twice going on 3 times now there's that thing reads like a textbook but it's so good and i would be very curious to just hear candid unscripted okay so really what did you mean by this kind of thing right he'd be a really interesting guy to talk to i feel like before he wrote principles which i love principles
1: to anybody that will listen you should have fundamental principles in your life but before that he was a very underrated like unknown figure billionaire mm-hmm. i mean 17, 18, $20 billion net worth. And not many people knew about him before he came out with some of his teachings and learnings. And I agree with you that the stuff he puts out is very dense, but if you capture it and he does a good job of simplifying it, it's just mind changing. And if you're not a reader, his videos on YouTube are just as good that the animated ones he puts together, they're just as Mm -hmm. good and simple.
0: Yeah. He talks about the debt cycle, debt credit cycles, And he ties historic events together from various different times. And yeah, I can't say enough good stuff about him and his books.
1: Absolutely. Well, Marcin, fantastic conversation. We appreciate having you on. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you or get connected, where's the best place we can point them?
0: Sure. Yeah, the best way to get connected is my website, marcindroze.com. Hopefully you can put that in the show notes there. M-A-R-C-I-N-D-R-O-Z-D-Z. And there's free tools and resources there for people that are looking to figure out how to scale the capital raising thing, the team building thing. There's a lot there for people. And we sometimes do quarterly challenges, five-day challenges. We've got all kinds of different things to help people kind of step up and scale their real estate. So that's probably the best way to do it.
1: Perfect. Yeah, we'll link all that in the show notes and then fantastic having you on. Appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.